Titus, please. And uh, we have someone working with the young people today, Mrs. Wiley, I believe it is. So young people, you can head on out right now, head to the upper room that direction, and uh, you will have time in the Word while we have time in the Word. And you're getting to the book of Titus. A number of years ago, uh, there was a, a pastor's wife who, uh, who worked, Tammy Kramer was her name, she worked at an AIDS clinic in Los Angeles. And uh, one day, a young man came in for his weekly treatments. And what was different this day as he came in for the treatment is that uh, he was going to be introduced to a new doctor, a new doctor taking over his care. I'm not sure whether the other doctor left or whatever, but for some reason, he had a change of doctor, maybe a change of care a little bit. And so uh, he was a little bit apprehensive, and when he went into the room, the doctor was already there. And uh, according to this gentleman, without hardly looking at, at him, the doctor said casually, you know, don't you, you won't live out the year. Now, whether it was true or not, those words were not the best way to greet a new patient. Uh, not a great way to greet anyone. Someone you're supposed to care for and yet just laying it out right on the line without even even taking time to get to know the person or whatever. And the man was absolutely devastated. And he was in obvious distress as he was leaving the clinic. And, and he stopped at the desk where Tammy uh, worked, Tammy Kramer. He was actually sobbing and he cried. He took away my hope. Well, Tammy, being a Christian on that day, happened to be ready with an answer. And it was an answer that gave an open door to witness. She looked with sympathy at the young man, and she said, I guess he did. And then after slightly pausing, she said, do you have another one? And she was able to talk to him about another hope. In the Bible, we're told about another hope. If men were to shatter every ounce of hope you have in this life, do you have another one? Those who know Jesus Christ as Savior do. And the hope is talked about in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse uh, 13, which tells us, if you aren't familiar with these words, you should be, because we said them just a few moments ago. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. In the Bible, we're told of another hope, and this other hope is a constant theme and focus in the New Testament. In fact, as we've told you in our study of the subject of hope, which quite honestly we could probably take all year on, and we've taken quite a few Sundays already on throughout this year, but as we study the subject of hope, in the Old Testament, most of the time when you see hope, it's referring to hope in difficulties, hope in trials, hope in struggles. In the New Testament, when hope is talked about, it's also talking about hope in difficulty and struggles, but most often the hope is focusing on what's to come what God has promised. And so Christians have, if you want to use that opening illustration, another hope. 
a hope that is that lasts, a hope that is there no matter what happens. And if someone crushes all the hope you have of life on this earth, they can't take away the blessed hope that God talks about in Titus chapter 2 and talks about in so many other places. And uh, this continual hope is, has kept believers going throughout the centuries, and it will continue to be the hope of believers. And I'm thankful that I can stand up this morning and tell you there is a hope that no matter what's going on in our society, no matter what we see going on in government, no matter what is happening in individual lives, no matter what kind of medical uh, situation we have, no matter what is happening in life, the Christian always has hope. Looking for that blessed hope. Without a doubt, it would be a diff difficult thing to be told you don't have to, long to live. If your only hope in life is to survive another day because you have no idea what's coming after death, then comments like what that doctor made that day might truly destroy any hope you have. But those who know Jesus Christ have a hope of another day. And so whether a deadly pandemic is in our future or bad health news is in our future, uh, m coming military conflicts are in, in possibly the future, all those things may change our lives outwardly, but they don't have to remove the hope that God promises in his word. No one can take away hope in God. So I hope today, I truly do, that you will be encouraged by these verses, verses 13 and 14 in Titus chapter 2. Now, I draw to your attention to the fact that we pick up in verse 13 right in the middle of a sentence, and that's not really fair to do. I know that, but quite honestly, just in these two verses that we are seeking to memorize this month, although they're only a section of one sentence and of the whole, which has a great message in it, we're only going to look at these two verses because if I look at all of it, I'll, we'll be here till 3 o'clock. And for some reason, I just don't think people will come back at 5 if I go till 3. All right? But that's not the only reason. It's because they're so full of information and so full of great hope, these verses, that I want you to be able to focus on them. So to put it, though, all in context, I want to just touch on why this statement is found here. In the grand context of this book, Paul is writing to a man by the name of Titus. Duh, right? Okay, that's not one of those. You don't have to be a college, college graduate and uh, have a, a degree in Bible study in order to understand that. But Titus was a young pastor, and he's being instructed by Paul about things he needed to know in ministry. As all young pastors do, we don't have all the answers. We don't know all the things we, we need to know. And so this book was written to be a great blessing and a help to him. This is found, and these verses are found in the midst of it, and the reason they are is because Paul has just gotten done, or he's been telling Titus, here are some things you need to teach people. Here's what people need to hear from you. Here's what people need to know. Here are things that you need to deal with and situations you need to take care of. If we were to read all of the chapters before this and all the verses before this, we'd find a lot of interesting things that are being dealt with. But as we come to verses 13 and 14, we're getting kind of to the end of this instruction Paul is giving because we find in verse 15 these words, and these, th these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. See, as a young pastor, someone might say, well, you know, who are you? you're just a young guy. How can you help me, you know, and understand truth? Some guy that's been saved for a number of years, some man that's a little bit older, or maybe an older lady would say, well, no one can teach me anything from the word. 
But Titus had authority from God, and Paul wanted him to know that as a pastor, he had a responsibility, teach people, help them understand truth. So in the grand context of the book, this instruction is something that Titus was supposed to preach so people would know it, and they have it firmly in their mind. This is a truth all Christians then need to hear. For people who are part of the family of God, I'll tell you something. This, these verses actually tell us, and this whole section tells us, you need a church. You know, God has given a pastor to help people understand Bible truth and to hear Bible truth and to be instructed in Bible truth so that we might become what God wants us to be. We could look at a lot of scriptures today, and we're not going to take time because I said we're only focusing on two verses. But to understand these two, you got to understand that church is important for you. God has given pastors to help you understand truth. That's what's going on here. The second thing, in the narrow context of the entire sentence, it starts in verse, uh, in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. In the narrow, narrow context of this sentence, we find that this promise comes only because God is gracious. Because there is a God in heaven who is willing to give grace. That's the only reason we have the blessed hope. You, you understand that? The only reason I can say today, I've got hope, even if my hopes were shattered as far as life on this earth is concerned. The reason I can say I'm going to heaven someday, God is coming again someday, is not because I've done anything. It's because God is a God of grace, and he has offered and extended grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The hope that's talked about in this verse all goes back to what God has done when he offers his salvation by grace through faith. Nothing we can do to earn it, nothing we can do to win it, nothing we can do to keep it. It is a gift because grace is a gift that God gives and he has provided for us. And it is not only the grace of God that brings salvation, but it's the grace of God that helps us live life victoriously. And that is what he is talking about in this passage. And he says, the grace of God has provided this. So now you can look for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because God gives as a gift grace to those who come to faith, by faith to him, and say, I trust in Jesus Christ. And God extends his grace to save. And then God extends his grace daily to help us live life for the glory of God. Because God is a God of grace. What a wonderful truth. And that is, all, that is all introductory to these two verses that are found in this passage. So let's look at these two verses now. Let's think about them. We first find a coming appearance. This verse speaks of a glorious appearing. Look at these words. I, you can't, I don't know, you can't say these verses looking for that blessed hope. You really can't. And if you want to read it that way, oh, some people do. I know, I get it, all right? But if you want to read it that way, you're not reading it the way you really should. Looking for that blessed hope. And then he goes on, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, that is a wonderful truth. And it's not something we should just go, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of great God. No, it's something to be excited about. There is a coming appearance. What is the blessed hope? It's a fair question our passage answers. The great God, the great Savior, Jesus Christ, will someday appear. He's coming again. Now, look, that's, that's if you would, the short of it. 
We know from the rest of Scripture this appearing is important because it's the day when God will take believers to be with him in heaven. And that day is coming. We look for it. We call it the rapture. The Lord is coming again. And it's talked about in many places of Scripture and is written to be an encouragement to believers. It is a blessed hope that the great God and Savior Jesus Christ will appear. And he's going to take his children to be, back with, uh, to be with him back in heaven. Um, it's a pretty amazing truth. And this truth is found as a theme throughout the Bible. It's found as a theme in the writings of Paul. Take a moment, if you would, uh, to turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A passage that, that sometimes is only read at funeral services. And that's sad. Because it wasn't intended to be only read at funeral services. Although it's an encouragement at a funeral service because it was written to be a comfort to believers. Yet this truth is something that, that is, is a great blessing to believers who are living. But, but I would not have you to be ignorant, verse 13 says, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. You know, people have no hope. It's people that think, I'll, I'll never see them again. People that think, all I have to live for right now on this, on this earth is my life. That's all I got to live for. And, and Paul, writing to believers, says, hey, look, those who are already asleep, those who have already died, don't live as if you have no hope of seeing them again. Why? Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So this is a theme, and this truth, this blessed hope that there is a glorious appearing to look forward to has been a theme. It was a theme on the lips of Paul. It was an encouragement to be a blessing to the believers. By the way, it wasn't just the message that Paul preached. It wasn't just that the apostles talked about it. Peter talked about it. He talked about the trial of faith and the great hope that believers have. All the apostles wrote about it. But you know the reason they wrote about it? It's because when Jesus ascended to heaven, the angel said, this John chapter 14 talked, uh, you know, I, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what did he say? I will come again. So it was a promise that Jesus Christ gave uh, to his followers. It was a promise that the angels talked about. It was a promise that all the apostles talked about as well in their messages and in their preaching. But it's a blessed hope because it's what God talked about before the world ever began. You say, well, where do we find that? I'm glad you asked that question. In Titus chapter 1, that's right, in Titus chapter 1, we learn that truth. Look at what it says. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised. When did he promise eternal life? When did he promise this hope that Jesus would come again and we'd go to be with him? So get this, this is a hope that's been around for, for some, you know, like 6,000 years. By the way, not millions and millions and millions of years because uh, evolutionists are wrong. Uh, God created the world some 6,000 or so years ago. I don't know the exact number. I'm not worried about it. God knows because he was here and he made it and he told us about it in Genesis 1. In six literal 24-hour days, my Lord made all that we see and all that we enjoy in this world. He is the great creator of all. And my friends, before he ever made the first thing on this earth, before he ever created uh, this world in which we, we would live, God said, I'm going to send a redeemer. And he's going to provide salvation for all mankind. And I, by grace, am going to offer eternal life to anyone who will trust in me, in my son, and what he's done for me. God made that promise before the world began. Is that not an amazing thing? So look. This blessed hope we're talking about today is not just something that someone dreamt up. It's not some, something that someone came up with after they had some, you know, bad food and they were up all night and they were trying to, you know, their mind was just wandering all sorts of strange things. No, this is a hope that God has talked about and God talked about from the very beginning. That is why in Genesis 3, right at the beginning when man sinned, God promised that he would send someone to crush the serpent's head because he already knew there was a plan in, in work that eternal life was going to be a gift that God would offer to all mankind. It is an amazing thing. It truly is. And this is what we're talking about today, and it's why we have a blessed hope, because God is the one originally who said, I will give eternal life to all, and I'm going to send my son, and he will take the place of sinners, and he will provide a way of salvation, and all who believe on him will have eternal life. And that God also promised that he would come again, and we would all be with him someday. And that's what we're talking about here in Titus chapter 2. And I'll tell you something, that's something to be excited about. It's a blessed hope that God gives us in his word. So what is the blessed hope? that the, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus is God. And that's another sideline that we don't have time to really dig into today, but it's taught in this passage. He is the great God and he is the Savior. Jesus, the Christ. And this one has promised that he's coming again. And this one has promised since the very beginning that all who trust in him can have eternal life and know they have eternal life so that we don't have to doubt, we don't have to question. By the way, the, the religions that teach, well, you just don't know if you're going to heaven, you got to do this, you got to do that, and if you do good enough, then maybe someday you'll get to heaven. Don't even understand the great hope of Scripture. What hope is there that Jesus is coming again if you don't know you're saved? These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may think ye have eternal life. No, God says that ye may know that you have eternal life. There is no hope unless salvation is an eternal thing that God does and takes care of not by our works but by his grace. And so we say today Jesus is coming again and that gives great hope no matter what's going on because anyone who's saved is going to be part of that uptaking that is talked about in the scripture when Jesus comes. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is it a blessed hope? 
That's the second question that came to mind as I was looking at this passage. So we understand it's a blessed hope. It is a blessed hope because Jesus is coming again. But why is it a blessed hope? Well, by the way, the word blessed can be understood as happy. It's a happy, a happy hope. I like that. In fact, I almost would like to say it that way better. Looking for that happy hope. It is. It's a happy hope. It's a very happy. It's a blessed expectation. And here's the reason why. Because the fulfillment of eternal life is going to be made right at that very moment when people are caught up to be with our Lord. If they don't believe that, well, all you got to do is go back to 1 Corinthians 15 that we're not going to take time on because I said these verses, these two verses aren't up. But in 1 Corinthians 15, God talks about, you know what? We're all going to be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, those who are part of the family of God have this hope that our bodies are going to be are going to be changed. Are you glad about that? I mean, man, this mortal will put on immortality, so I won't have to worry about I won't have to worry about uh, about, about getting tired all the time. I won't have to worry about some disease that's going to take my life because I'm going to live eternally with my God and my Savior, Jesus the Christ, the one who's coming to take me. And that work is going to be done the moment he comes and he catches me to be with him. We shall all be changed in the, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And that is the hope of believers. No wonder he says to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because, look, any work we do for Christ is worth it because he is the one coming to take us and give us that eternal life that's talked about. So it's a great hope because the eternal life God talked about before the world began will actually come to fruition at that moment when we receive those glorified bodies. And, you know, I, I, we, we just have no idea what that's going to be like but it's going to be a wonderful day. Um, and God offers that. So it is uh, the promise of eternal life is going to be fulfilled. Let me tell you another reason why it's exciting, because the end of the struggle with sin is going, to, is going to take place, as far as Christians are concerned. I don't know about you, but, I, you know, it, it's great to think that someday I won't have to worry about and I won't have to struggle with the temptations that we find in life that ruin our and, and hinder our relationship with God. That constantly bring, if you would, a breakdown to the sweet fellowship that there is when one is walking in fellowship with God. Romans 6 talks about this. In Colossians chapter uh, 3 and, and Ephesians chapter 4, they all talk about how a Christian is to, to put off the old man and put on the new man. Those are, are very vivid descriptions in those chapters, talking about this battle and this struggle. Romans 6 says, don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. And there's just this battle going on in my mind and in my heart all the time. I want to do that which is right, Romans 7, but I find myself doing things that are sinful. And bless God, someday that's not going to be. Someday I won't have that battle any longer. And it happens when Jesus Christ gives me that glorified body. When he comes again, no wonder, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So eternal life. That's, that promise is promised to me, and that new body is coming, the end of the struggle with sin. Here's another truth. First John chapter 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That is an amazing thing, that God allows me to be called his son, his child. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not, which is also a profound truth. 
But then we get to this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a day coming where I'm going to see my Lord face to face, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be like him. That is a wonderful privilege that comes only to believers, but it's a blessed hope. Here's another reason why uh, this is such a blessed hope, because suffering will be ended. Now, now, not all suffering will end at the coming of the Lord. You say, what? No, it won't. Read the book of Revelation. Read about the tribulation period. There's going to be a lot of judgment, a lot of things to come. There, there will be suffering and there will be sorrow. There's a lot of pain that's still to come, not for the believer, though. It'll be over. It'll be over. Those, those battles with, with the, the pains and the aches, the, those things, all suffering will be, will be ended for the believer. No more worry about, about losing a loved one, no more uh, concerns about, and no more health issues that, that can lay us aside and, and put us in bed for a time. Suffering will all be, will be ended. Um, and I don't know but that, about, about you, but that sounds pretty good to me. No more saying goodbye to loved ones. Um, I, I put even another reason. We'll avoid the coming wrath of God. I got to tell you, when I read about the, the judgment that is going to be poured out on this earth, it is a, a frightful thing. Do you know that in one place in the book of Revelation, God says that he will shorten the day. And the reason why God shortens the day, because men wouldn't make it. It's going to be that bad. The suffering, the, the pain that many folks will go through during the tribulation period, it's not something that a believer has to worry about. I'm, I'm thankful for that hope. I really am thankful for that hope that God gives me in his word. For all those who are part of the family of God. But listen, that hope is not available to someone who's not saved. They don't have that hope. Look, the truth is, if Jesus would come today, that would begin. The period of, of we, we believe it to be right around seven years where God will pour out his wrath on this earth. And mankind will face the wrath of Almighty God because God is a God of wrath and judgment. He is a God of love, but he has shown love for, for thousands of years and people have continually rejected it. And there's a time when God will say, enough is enough. And that's when Jesus comes, takes us to be with him. And there will be a time of peace during that seven years. Yes, there will be, but there will come at the end of that the judgments of an Almighty God upon this earth. And a Christian has a blessed hope. He doesn't have to worry about that day. Those who are part of the family of God will be caught up to be with the Lord, looking for that blessed hope. Amen? It is something we should be excited about. Um, we could even say one other thing. Believers will be rewarded. Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, talking to another young preacher, said this, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. 
the judgment seat of believers will take place after he catches us to be with him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that is also a thing that is, is a, a wonderful hope to those who are living for God. It is indeed a blessed hope. And so we find then from this just this very simple pray, phrase that there is a coming appearance and it is a blessed hope. It is a completed work. Go back, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. Now, I know we've talked about it. We brought a lot of other truths found in Scripture. But verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us, talking about this Savior, Jesus Christ, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. It's a completed work. Now, verse 13 could stand alone in its glory, couldn't it? Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if he ended there, we would all say, oh, man. We'd all say, amen. We'd all say, amen. we would. It could have ended there. But, but by inspiration, God led Paul, his Holy Spirit guided and directed Paul, to write these words to remind us why we have a blessed hope. And let's not forget them. The, the, this verse is, is a, a beautiful, precious picture of, of why, why we, any of us, have any kind of blessed hope. It's because the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God, who's coming in the clouds to take us to be with him, provided the way. And, and although verse, 14, verse 13 can stand alone, I am so thankful that God in wisdom gave us this verse to just remind us that it's not what I've done. It's what God has done. So let's ponder this beautiful truth that follows this great statement. It's a completed work. Notice what we find in verse 14. Who gave himself for us? Jesus gave himself for us. In John chapter 10, Jesus was talking and sharing a number of things with his followers that they needed to know. And he made a statement in verse 15. He said, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He later said, no one's going to take it from me. I'm going to lay it down. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus entered this world with a mission and with a purpose and with a goal. It was not to teach us how to live life, although Jesus taught us perfectly how to live life because he was sinless. Jesus did not come to be a good example for mankind so we could all say, oh, this is what a, how a good person lives. No, Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of the world. I came to seek and to save, he said, that which is lost. Jesus' purpose was to come and to give himself for us, for God so loved the world. You know that verse. Everyone in this room knows that verse, I would think. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the plan of God before the foundation of the world, because it's the only way God could promise eternal life, God knew his son, Jesus Christ, would come. God would come in the flesh would give himself and die for the sins of the world. He gave himself for us. We might have life. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because uh, we are wonderful people. It's because God is a wonderful God. 
and God loves mankind, and God wanted to, wants to enjoy fellowship with mankind, and there's only one way that it could happen. If someone paid the perfect sacrifice, and Jesus Christ came to do that, he gave himself for us. Ephesians 2 says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Jesus Christ. Great passage talking about the grace that saves, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But in the verses that come before that, it reminds us what we were. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We couldn't do anything to win our way to heaven. We couldn't do anything to please God. We couldn't have a relationship with God because sin has broken that relationship. And God provided a way. Jesus gave himself for us. And I love what he says, who gave himself for us. Look at this. That he might redeem us from most of our sin. Now, now here's the thing. This is, this is where a lot of churches get off and they talk about how you got to work your way to salvation. You got to keep living it after you trust Jesus Christ. Okay, that is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus' death took care of all my sin and yours so that when I trust Christ, my sins are gone. They're under the blood of Jesus Christ. I can't do anything to get rid of any sin in my life. It's all what Jesus Christ did. He died for us and he might redeem us from, I love this, all iniquity. It doesn't mean that I don't sin after I'm saved. It doesn't mean that I don't struggle with sin because I do, and the Bible talks clearly about that. We've already mentioned that very fact. But what Jesus did was he saved me from all iniquity by his death. It was sufficient to pay the price so that I have a blessed hope. When Jesus comes, I'll go to be with him because Jesus took care of all my sin. And I stand before God, get this, sanctified, totally holy and pure, sinless today in my standing before God because of Jesus Christ, not because of myself. Not because of what I've done. And as a result, I, I, I know I have eternal life. Again, not because of me, because I couldn't do anything about my sin. But Jesus took care of all of it at the cross. Now, uh, there's another teaching about sanctification in the Bible. It says, as a Christian, I'm supposed to be, begin, I'm supposed to be living the way God sees me. Okay? And there's people who get really confused about that, and we don't have time for that this morning to teach on the, on the other aspect of sanctification. But the truth is, when someone gets saved, all their sins are cared for under the blood of Christ, and they're standing before God, and their relationship with God, a son of God or a daughter of God, will never change because it's what God does. He redeemed him, us from all iniquity. He gave himself so that we could be redeemed from all iniquity, so that we could be ready for this day. He gave himself for us. And then he redeemed us from all iniquity. I love that word. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Thayer who's written a book of definitions, and he defined redeem this way, and I like it. To liberate by payment of a ransom. And we can understand that, can't we? You've, you've seen, I've seen movies you probably have in life, where, you know, some person is kidnapped and then this ransom note is sent or a call is made saying, you got to pay such and such by such and such a time. And if the ransom is paid, well, actually, they always say they won't do it, they'll kill them anyway, you know. But if the ransom, if the guy who kidnapped them is, is any kind of honesty, then when the ransom is paid, the person is returned. 
Jesus redeemed us. He, he liberated us by payment of the ransom. Jesus paid the price. I got to tell you the story I came across a number of years ago. True story about a man in New York City. He was kidnapped. And his kidnappers, kidnappers called his wife, asked for a $100,000 ransom. You say, oh, that's, that's not good. She talked him down. Kid you not. He's in the papers. Talked him down to 30000 Seriously. Now, the story had a happy ending. Uh, the man returned home unharmed. The money was actually recovered. The kidnappers were caught, sent to jail. But don't you wonder what happened when the man got home and found out his wife got him back for a discount? Fick, it was written about in, the, in, the, in, a, in a paper. Calvin Trillian, Trillian wrote the article. And he imagined out loud what negotiations must have been like, you know. thousand for that old guy? You got to be crazy. Look at him. Look at the gut. You want 100000 for that? You got to be kidding. Give me a break. 30000 my top offer. A speaker, you know, after reading the story, he concluded this rendition of the story with this thoughtful comment. He said, I suppose there are some here this morning who can identify with the wife in that story. Don't even say you do. But for some reason, he said, I find myself identifying with the husband. I'd like to think if I were in a similar situation, there would be people who had no expense to get me back. They wouldn't haggle over price. They wouldn't say, let me think about it. I'd like to think that they would say, we'll do anything for him. And then he said, Jesus didn't balk at the asking price. He didn't balk at the asking price. He paid it in full to redeem us, to liberate us from all iniquity. So that, get this, not only did, is my slate totally clean, but also what Jesus did was he provided a way and a means and the power by which I don't have to live under the control of sin any longer. What a beautiful truth. So as a Christian, I don't have to live defeated and controlled by sin because Jesus, Jesus paid the price in full, the ransom. You know what's so amazing about God's ransom for us, though? What, what is so amazing about it um, is not what we hear preached today, because a lot of preachers are talking about how wonderful Jesus saved you. But when Paul talked about the wonder of salvation, he wrote these words in Romans 5, for when we were yet without strength. In other words, I didn't have the ability. I didn't have any strength. I didn't, couldn't do anything about my condition. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for good people. He didn't die because we're wonderful people. He didn't die because he said, oh, man, do I think that Steve Schwenke is something special. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love toward us in that. Yeah, you're saying that already, aren't you, in your mind? While we were yet sinners. God's enemy. Wicked sinners that had violated God's law who you would think God would not like at all. But 
Christ came and died for us. And he paid the ransom in full to redeem us, to take away all sin. What a wonderful Savior. Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He purified us, we find in verse 14. The reason God gave us this gift to redeem us was so that we could be holy, purified, cleansed. God didn't save you so you could go on your way and say, got a home in heaven now, can do whatever I want because I'm saved. By the way, that seems to be the mentality of a lot of Christianity uh, today. It's kind of like, don't talk to me about living a different life. Don't talk to me about holiness. Let me live the way I want to live. And God says, I saved you to change you. I want you to be different. I saved you to purify your life so that you wouldn't have to live under the control of sin and all the damaging things that sin does to your heart and your life and your relationship with me. And so God came to provide a way so that we could live pure, holy lives, not controlled by sin, not defeated by sin, not not, uh, wallowing things that are going to destroy our lives, but enjoying him and living a holy life that is acceptable to purify unto himself. Purify people. And the picture, actually, is a reference to the Old Testament. You know that? You get that? To purify unto himself. You know what they did with, with uh, different utensils and, and vessels and things that were used in the temple and the worship of God in the Old Testament? You, you didn't just take a fork into the temple and use it or a knife or, or a utensil or a tool or a spoon or something to that effect and use it in the worship of God. No, what they had to do was they took things, they made them for the purpose of the work in the temple, and then they were, if you would, purified before they were ever taken into that place because nothing that wasn't pure and clean could ever be used in the worship and service of God. And that is referenced in this passage when he says that he came to purify unto himself. That God came to make us like like those vessels in the temple, something that has been totally clean and purified and set apart now so that we can serve God. And the truth is no one could do that until they're saved until that work by Jesus Christ was done. And that Jesus Christ is coming again. It's verse 13. But verse 14 says, the reason I did all this was so that I could make you a vessel that is pure and clean and holy before me that can be used in, in my service. And it's an amazing thing. But now God gives me the opportunity by my life to bring forth fruit to God. I couldn't do that before I was saved. Do you know that all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's eyes before I'm saved? That's the truth that's born out in Scripture. Here's, I can't do anything before I was saved to please God. Nothing. But now I can because Jesus not only took care of all sin, but Jesus also set me apart as one that's purified and holy so that now I can actually live in a way that pleases God and I can glorify God by my life. And that's what he saved me for. So don't come to this passage and just say, Amen, go into heaven. Come to this passage and also say, God saved me for a reason and I want to live in light of that. Because I want to, I want to be living like he prepared me and like he saved me for. So that is what we find in verse 14. That he saved us so that we could be these pe- peculiar people. 
You know, fundamentalists are peculiar people. I know that. Independent, separated Baptists are peculiar people, are they not? So, yeah, they are. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm talking about myself here, so we're good, all right? So don't say, I'm not pointing the finger at you, but I'm saying that. He did. But when he says purify unto himself a peculiar people, uh, the idea is a, a, a special people. Not weird, not strange, but a people special to God who belong to him. I'm his. Now, Christian, I should reflect him because I'm his. And that's what he came to do for me. I think the words of 1 Corinthians 6 are fitting here. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's in every part of my life, inside, outside, my thoughts, my outward deeds and actions. I should want to glorify, magnify, lift up, and, and, and honor this one who provided or who bought me with the price of his blood. So that's the challenging purpose. When you come to this, the end of verse 14, after you think about it, looking for that blessed hope and rejoicing in that, you come to the challenge that he saved us to become not only a peculiar people, but then a people zealous of good works. And I put it as the third point, a challenging purpose, and that is to change us, to change us. Do you know what it means to be zealous? The word is transliterated. Don't you? I love it when I can use a big word. <clears throat> okay? But it's not really all that, it's not all that impressive. Transliteration is when you take a word from one language and you use it in the other. Baptize, baptism, is a term that's taken right from the Greek. Do you know zealous, zeal, is a word taken directly from the Greek. So it's not that it was defined when it was used, it was just taken from the Greek. So when they were translating, they said, let's use the word zealous, which is the actual Greek word. What does it mean? Thanks for asking. It's a good question, and I want to answer for it. It means actually literally to be hot. That's not the idea, okay? But in, in many uses, this word, when it's used in, in the Greek, it means to be, to be hot with the idea of boiling over. So uh, most, when they talk about and define this word, they talk about having a fervor for Jesus Christ, just a fire burning in your heart where you want to live for God. I think that's a great way to describe it. But I also think using the root word, which means to literally hot, to the point of boiling, boiling over, is also a good picture. Now, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll make hot tea because I, I hate coffee, all right? Just, or you already know that anyway. I'll make hot tea on cold winter mornings to warm me up in the office. And sometimes, because I put it in the microwave to heat up the water, because that's what we do now, um, sometimes I run the microwave too long. Not, not to the place where it's like all gone, but where the water just starts... Okay, you've never done that. Yeah, sure, you've never done it. You always just stand there and wait, and you watch, and you make sure nothing's going on in your microwave. I don't, okay? I just start it, and it's just going. And sometimes I'll open it up, and I'll, and I'll find that it has just spilled out all over. That's a great way to picture what God wants for us. He wants me to, to, to spill out all over good works. 
Isn't that a great way to understand it? So he wants me to just be boiling over as a Christian all the time on, on, on the things that are right, that are good, that are holy. That's what he wants my life to be because that's what he saved me for. That's what he provided all this for. Part of it was so that I could be a person who actually just boils over with good works. So look, are, are you hot today? I'm not talking about are you hot in the service, but are you boiling over with good works as a believer? And if not, I'll tell you, friends, the one who's coming again came and provided salvation so that you would. So that, by the way, you'll be ready for that blessed hope when Jesus comes. And you'll be able to look at him, look at his face and say, Lord, I have been living for you and I've served you because you've done so much for me. That, my friends, are these two verses. And it's taken up all our time today. But they are important verses because they give us hope because they challenge us to live a different life. Now, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you don't know you have eternal life, let me tell you something. Jesus came to provide a way for you to have eternal life, and he desperately wants you to have it, and he offers it as a gift. You can't win it. You can't earn it. It's something that God offers by grace if you will trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ as payment for your sin you can't do anything about that God's willing to forgive through Christ. And you need him. But if you're his, Christian, live like it. Because he's coming again. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. couple questions to ask you with heads bowed and eyes closed. Please don't worry about anyone else. I just want to ask you a few things. First is, do you know without a shadow of a doubt, if Jesus were to come today, you would be part of that catching away of believers, that blessed hope, because you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you're part of his family. Do you know that? If you know that, if you could say, Pastor, I know that. I know I'm part of the family of God. I know I'm saved. I know if Jesus came today, I would be caught up. I know that not because of what I've done, but because I, at some point in time in my life, I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. I know I've done that. And I, I can tell you as a testimony to that fact. Would you raise your hand if you can say that? I know it. I know I'm part of the family of God. I'm saved by faith in Christ. Great, wonderful. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Second question is, if you're a Christian and a great number of you were able to raise your hand to say that, are you living in light of that truth? Because the one who is coming, who we can look forward to and we can anticipate with hope, is the one who saved you to make you different. Would you say, you know, preacher, as I think about verse 14 in this passage, God challenged me about my life as a Christian and he spoke to me about some things that I need to change to please the one who bought me and saved me to free me from sin and help me to live victoriously. Would you pray for me? Would any say that? God spoke to me today from his word, from that passage about what God did to save me. I'm glad you're honest about that. I'm glad God worked in your heart. Thank you. Any others say the same? All right, number of hands, number of people. So then um, this is what God wants you to do if you're part of his family, to, to live in light of this truth and walk with him. And it may be that you need to deal with and do business with, uh, about the sin in your life and begin to take steps today. And I want to encourage you to do that very thing. 
when we have the invitation to just talk to God about it. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've done. Thanks for offering salvation. I pray if anyone is here that's not part of the family of God, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. For those who know you, Lord God, help them as they indicated a need to deal with that and do business with you today, to leave this place living like what you've saved them to be. And I'll thank you for what you'll do in Christ's name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Don't worry about anyone else. If you're able, just stand to your feet right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We have a hymn of invitation. Just a moment as he begins to play where believers can do business with God. Talk to him. Uh, There's room up front. You can come and get on your knees. If you'd like to do that, talk to the Lord about things he challenged you about today. Or right where you're at, just take a moment to, to kneel down, sit down, talk to the Lord about it. Leave this place clean and pure, having talked to the one who worked in your heart about something today and that you're ready now to live and walk and please him, the one who saved you for that purpose. He's coming again. Let's live like it. Let's live in light of that truth. Father, I thank you for the wonderful promise you're coming again. Thank you for, as well, challenging us in verse 14 with with what you desire from us because you are coming again and because you've done so much for us. And I pray that you'd help us to live in light of these verses today, that your people would live right. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict those who are unsaved that they might become part of the family of God today and be ready for the day when Jesus comes again. And I will thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you as you look for that blessed hope. You're dismissed.